what advice would you give an aspiring investor who's you know six to 12 months behind you? This is something that has really, I've seen it play out in my life over and over and over again. But my goal is to have a thousand doors mm-hmm. in 36 months. So that is extremely aggressive. And I did that for a reason, because mm-hmm. even if I don't hit it, I'm still going to end up with several hundred doors. So the fears of some of the pitfalls of this million dollar deal, $1.2 million deal become smaller knowing the amount of activity that I have to do in order to get to that big goal, propelling me through the big vision is propelling me through some of these smaller battles that if I was only looking at this one deal, I may get hung up on and quit. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast with your host, Brian Briscoe. In this podcast, we bring some of the top professionals in the apartment investing field to discuss various aspects of the apartment investing journey with the sole purpose of educating listeners to make wise investment decisions. The Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast is sponsored by Four Oaks Capital, bringing you high yield returns through apartment complex investing. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast. I'm your host, Brian Briscoe with Four Oaks Capital. Uh, Excited for today's show. We got another one of our first deal episode series. And I'm very excited today to have Logan Bowers on the line with us. Logan, how are you doing? I am doing excellent. How are you? Doing great. Thanks. So uh, tell, tell the listeners a little bit about you. So Logan's been involved in real estate for five years now as a, as a residential agent. On the side, he's done a few dozen flips. And he's also owned a few dozen single family rentals, which you know I just found out he still owns seven of them. Recently made the switch from single family to multifamily. And by the time this airs, we'll have closed, you know, we're supposed to close in a day. But by the time this airs, he will have closed on a 55 unit mobile home park that he was able to get across the finish line. So that said, Logan, welcome to the show. And let's talk about you. Well, tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah. So I actually got into real estate originally. I was in the oil and gas industry. And in the downturn of 2015, where prices really crashed, um, South Louisiana oil and gas is very big. Mm-hmm. And um, in that downturn, I ended up getting let go from my job. And my manager at the time, uh, our location manager, had become a very good friend. And he was really pushing me to invest in real estate. Mm-hmm. I was middle 20s, kind of a knucklehead, wanted to just party and drink and didn't really yeah. care about <laughs> real estate. I'm like, what are we going to do? Like paint walls and like decorate houses? I'm like, that sounds terrible. Eventually he gets me in, right? It's like, look, this is wise. He gives me the rich, the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Mm -hmm. And I read that a month before I actually lost my job. So Mm -hmm. when I read that book, I realized that I was being extremely foolish and all I had was liabilities. So that's when my mindset kind of shifted it. And I was like, maybe this real estate thing is, I should give it a try. So we ended up losing our jobs uh, about a month later in May of 2016. Mm-hmm. And from that point, um, I was like, look, let's do this flipping thing. Like, let's try it out. So we bought a house. Mm-hmm. We flipped it. Took us a couple months to find one. We found one. We passed on a bunch of like, now that I look back, really good deals. But we were just nervous. Yeah. So we bought one, flipped it. We made $17,000. And I thought I was a rock star. <laughs> I was Ooh. like, this is insane. So seventeen thousand like, each, yeah, or seventeen thousand like, between the two of you? No, between the two of us. Oh, Total okay. Deal, we made seventeen thousand on. I mean, that, that's not for, uh, for your first deal. It's not month. terrible. No, I mean a lot of people break out even or even lose money sometimes on the first one. So it was definitely a win. 
Yeah. Uh, the biggest win was that I, I knew like the numbers all made sense, but there's something different about knowing the numbers make sense in your head and hypothetically and to mm-hmm. actually realize the return. And so once that happened, the following month, as soon as we closed, we put three more houses under contract to flip. So for the next year, all we did was flip houses mm-hmm. and we had no full-time jobs. We flipped houses and we would take the profits from the houses and buy rental properties. Mm-hmm. And so about a year into that, my business partner decided that, you know, really through conversations with him and his wife, that the uncertainty of the up and down income was a little mm-hmm. bit much. And yeah. so he went back into the oil field and, and got a W-2 job again. And so there I was kind of left. We weren't mature enough business owners at the time mm-hmm. to know that you pay the person that's working in the business and then mm-hmm. the owner share the profit. So it was kind of like I was working in the business, but we were still splitting everything. And so I was like, well, I need to figure out another way to kind of generate income. And so that's how yeah. I ended up getting licensed as an agent. Cause I was like, man, I'd have saved a hundred grand of commissions just this last year by being licensed. Little did I know that that was going to kind of be a sidetrack for me and really took me mm-hmm. away from the heart of investing. So from that, con- that point on, we continued to flip houses and do some marketing and buy more rental properties, but we really slowed down on the investing side. And I really kind of ramped up my business as an agent. And so I kind of drifted away from the investing and it became something extremely passive. Like my network produced a lot of opportunities, just Mm -hmm. talking to people about real estate. And they would be like, Hey, my aunt has a house that she wants to sell. It's kind of messed up. Would you guys yeah. be interested in buying it? And those deals will still come across my desk even today because we did so much marketing. We did a lot of Facebook lives mm-hmm. and just really putting ourselves out there. We didn't know what we were talking about, but we were just yeah. doing it. And there's something about being authentic. And Gary Vaynerchuk was one that kind of inspired it of like, hey, just tell people where you're at. Like, you don't have to be an expert. If you're not an expert, like don't pretend to be and just kind of share people your journey as an investor. And man, people really gravitated towards that. And we kind of built a little audience from just being transparent in that single family investing space. So that produced some deals, but Mm -hmm. we kind of drifted away from the investing until here recently, I've decided to kind of shift back into more active investing in the multifamily space. So, so what caused the shift? I mean, you, you, you had, you had a good thing going. It sounds like went back to, you know, a regular job, which I mean, nothing wrong with that, but you went back to regular job and now. You, you said you're shifting back. What what was it that, that caused that shift back? So super interesting. I manage a sales team, uh, largest mm-hmm. sales team in our area. And I love helping people sell probably more than I enjoy selling myself. Mm-hmm. And we had some people actually in our team that were not really the best culture fit. And in that, I was really just pouring out into them. Well, my daughter was born. I have three kids. I have a four-year-old boy, mm-hmm. three-year-old and basically a two month old. And I was home for a couple of weeks and I had planned this. And when I was actually home with her and my wife, just every day working from the house, and I started really walking around my neighborhood and just spending a lot of time outside thinking, I remembered why I got into real estate in the first place. And it wasn't to go to an office every day and punch a clock and Mm -hmm. basically be an employee. Even though as an agent, your income's unlimited, you are still very, very much in the, if you don't do work, you don't get paid. Mm-hmm. Um, that same kind of cycle. Now you're, you can trade a lot more money for the same amount of time in yeah. a commission-based role like that, but you're still trading time for money at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And I had that revelation of like, 
I don't want to go back to work. Like, I don't yeah. want to go back to selling houses. Like, I want to be here doing investments, but really being in control of my time and spending it with my young family. So that was really that time period that I spent at home really like ignited the flame again to yeah. seek what I, I kind of lost the, the dream and the vision of what I, why I got into real estate to begin with. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, and that's, yeah, I think that that happened with me too. I mean, we made a goal, my wife and I made a goal to buy you know, X amount of single family homes and have them as investments in two straight years. We we met the goal and then it just like petered off. And it wasn't, it wasn't until a couple of years later where I started remembering. It's like, oh, you know what? I remember why I started buying all those so that I could do X and Y. And then, you know, same thing. I I made that switch myself, but now you, you've talked about your why a little bit. And something I like to focus on is exactly that, your big burning why. If you could distill it down and just focus on on your reason for doing this, what's, what's your big burning why? This is kind of a two-piece deal for mm-hmm. me. One of them is obviously my family, but I think that that's kind of generic and everyone says that. Uh, or lots of people say that, but if I had to boil it down, it's really not my why. My real why is connecting God mm-hmm. and business together. And even the structure of my family and how we act and operate is really doing the name of my company is Narrow Way Equity mm-hmm. because, and it comes from the scripture in Matthew that yeah. many will go through the wide gate, but few will go through the narrow gate, like doing things in business the narrow way which is mm-hmm. oftentimes you're going to take it on the chin sometimes like you're going to you're going to potentially lose money or you're going to potentially lose a deal by operating with integrity and that is really my why is to show people to to have a platform to show people that when you do things God's way mm-hmm. that there will be for you don't have to be this shrewd awful business person in order mm-hmm. to make money and grow wealth for your family and you don't have to be gone from your family all the time and not be present to grow a really big business, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so, so that's really the thing for me is having is creating that platform so people can see they can say, hey, how do I put these two together? Because a lot of times society wants to separate those religion mm-hmm. over here, and I hate that word religion, but a relationship with Christ and business, and like you put this hat on and you take the other one off and you put that one on, but. Yeah. For me, those are those are one and the same. They're not separate at all. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. And, you know, and, and something you know I've learned over and over again is is the golden rule really is golden. You know, it's it's one of those where if you were a shrewd business person, you would live the golden rule because it's good business. You know, it's one of those things. Yep. You know, do treat other people how you want to be treated. Do unto others as as you would have others do to you type stuff. But it ends up being good business. You know, that, that's something, like I said, I've, I learned over and over again, the better you try to live like that, the better you're, you're going to do in business, you know, and it's the mm-hmm. integrity thing. So operate your business with integrity. People are going to see that and, you know, people are going to be more likely to do deals with you. So we're, we're good on that one. So let, let's start talking about this, you know, mobile home park deal you got, you should be closing on soon. What, what were some of the challenges you had getting started with this? I, I guess even before we talk about the mobile home park, what are some of the challenges you had getting started in the, the multifamily journey or the commercial real estate journey? One of those was just making mm-hmm. the shift, which I think everyone kind of goes through that starts in single family is it becomes this big, scary thing buying all these doors at one time. And it can feel overwhelming in the due diligence. Like I Mm -hmm. always asking myself, am I ready to do this? Do I know enough to do this? Like, do do I have enough knowledge around this? And what I found in even starting out 
into single family. And I've owned a couple quadplexes, which I don't really consider those multifamily because they're treated by the banks as, as residential, even though they are. Um, yeah, I mean, technically they're multifamily. They're not commercial multifamily, you know. It's, that's it's, correct. They're in that yeah. weird gray space where yeah. it's a multi-unit dwelling, hence multifamily, but for some reason commercial starts at five. I don't know. Yep. But, uh, <laughs> I, don't yeah. know. I don't know why they picked that either, but they, that, they have to draw the line somewhere. That's it. Yeah. Um, just, yeah, they just drew the line. There you go. Yeah. yeah, so the due diligence was probably the scariest part for me is, mm-hmm. is hey, I, I don't know if, what I don't know in, the, in this space, but here's the thing about it. When you put yourself in the fire, you learn really quickly. That's mm-hmm. what I've learned is when you put yourself in the pressure seat for certain personality types, which I am one of those personality types that once I get into it, I'm going to be all in consuming focused. I'm going to be obsessed with figuring this out. And not until I get into it often, do I really get that laser focused? I mean, I will be focused on learning, but taking the action is another step. Um, And when I actually took that action to start looking for deals, and just started talking to people about it. One came up for me really quickly, which is not normally my experience in the past, but in this case it was. So you know, there's a lot about that. I think um, a lot of people fall in the the analysis paralysis trap, you know. And I I yep. did the same thing, you know. And I, it was one of those things where you're always looking for that next little piece of knowledge, or hey, you know, maybe that next book I'll read will fill in all the all the holes that I feel that I have. But I would say most people who have been network going to the networking events who've been reading the books listening to the podcast most of those people know enough to take the first couple of steps mm-hmm. and and those first couple of steps you know like like you said that, that's where you learn you know you, you take a couple of steps you you focus on that you learn what you need to do to take the next couple of steps and you move like that so so let, let's talk you know deal specific tell us how you found it i mean you already hinted at it already but a little more specifically tell us how you found it and then how, how that uh, came about getting it under contract and let's go from there yeah so i have been telling people for a little while now not really seriously until recently but just telling people hey if you know anybody sell them to that's looking to sell a mobile home park or apartment complex like i would be interested in looking at it and uh, had one of those conversations with an agent who was coming on to our team about a year ago. And um, he was like, actually, my in-laws have a park, but they've been having it for like 20 years and they are really attached to it. And I don't know if they're mm-hmm. going to part ways with it, but I know it'll be healthy for them because they're getting older and they don't really need to be dealing with it because they're self-managing it. And I said, look, man, if they ever seriously get, decide to sell it, like, let me know I am your buyer. I had no idea where the money was going to come from. I had no idea how I was going to structure the deal, but I just knew that like, based on what he had told me about it, that I was going to make it work. I was going to figure it out. So a couple of times throughout the last year, he's kind of talked about it. Hey, I think they're getting a little closer. And so a few weeks ago, probably eight weeks ago now, um, when I kind of made this shift, not long after that, he actually sent me a text message and said, Hey, Logan, my in-laws are really serious about selling the park. They nice. want to go sit down and talk numbers with you. And I'm like, you let me know Boom. when and where, and I'll be there. Nice. Nice. So, so how did that, that conversation go? I mean, was it was it a, a tough negotiation? Was it cordial? How did you, you guys come up on a price too? They kind of made up a price and just kind of pulled a number out of the air that they wanted for the park, which was $1.3 million. And mm-hmm. I was very soft in the beginning. I was mm-hmm. just there to build rapport in that first meeting, get mm-hmm. them to trust me. And so I just asked a lot of questions and they were very forthcoming with information. Mm-hmm. So I just asked a lot of questions to get all the information. And I said, hey, look, guys, I don't know if I can or can't pay you 1.3 million, 
but I'm going to go back and I'm going to research these numbers. I'm going to look over this stuff you guys have provided me and mm-hmm. do some diligence on it. And then I'm going to come back and, and let you know. And by the end of the conversation, they were so comfortable with me that they basically said, Hey, look, we wanted, you know, we're still uncertain about it, but if we do sell, like we would love to do business with you. So that took a little bit of the pressure off of, I know the environment right now is kind of aggressive mm-hmm. on the buy side. So that was a, a little bit of grace there that I had some time to go crunch these numbers and I didn't have to give them a number right away. And yeah. I've kind of told them what the, what the cap rates, the going cap rates for sales were in our area. Cause I've helped a couple of my, my friends buy parks. Um, here recently off the MLS. So I kind of knew the prevailing cap rates for my area. And so I kind of let them know like, hey, this is what the cap rates are. Um, And so then we had a secondary meeting where we followed up and had the negotiation. And I just kind of showed them like, hey guys, at 1.3, there's no way it's going to appraise for this. This is about the appraisal value um, that it's going to be is that 1.2. They looked at the numbers and they were very reasonable. They said, Logan, we want a fair price for it. And the upside of the park is that the lot rents are about $30 a, a month per lot below mm-hmm. market. So I can buy it at a fair cap rate because I have immediate upside that I can capitalize on and create that value, you know, mm-hmm. basically right out the gate. So nice. Nice. And, and I mean, the, the benefit to them is it's a much smoother process, you know, and I think I've worked with agents before, you know, no offense. I know you are an agent, you know, but you know, when, when you're dealing with, with agents, you know, especially buyer's agents, seller's agents, there, there, there's a lot of, a lot of things that are lost in communication. And I mean, sometimes, you know, if I could just subvert that process and know mm-hmm. that I had a buyer, I would do that every single day, but you get the agent because you want, you know, you don't want to have to go through the work to find that buyer. But so, I mean, you're, you're giving them a quick and an, and hopefully an easy sale. You're giving them what they think is a fair price. And I mean, for, from their perspective, that's better than going to an agent, putting it on the market, listing it, and maybe getting a slightly higher price. So, yeah. And, and they get called regularly about it. I mean, they shared that with me that the investor, mm-hmm. out-of-state investors are calling them regularly. Another piece that was really critical that I think it's relevant to mention is they didn't know where to go with the money. Mm-hmm. So I hooked them up with my financial advisor and they had an independent meeting. So not only did I provide them a buyer for their park, but I also helped them know where that money was going. Mm-hmm. And they, they're going with my advisor to help them invest the money. Mm-hmm. on the backside so they can continue to get paid a return on this on this wealth they've created. So I help them not only just with the transaction, but also where to go with the money once they sold it so that there is a win-win for everyone involved, yeah. you know? Nice. Yeah. Lot, just bringing that little extra value right there. Yep. So um, let, let's talk a little bit about uh, the money. You say one to 1.2 million purchase price. Tell us a little about, about the loan, what, what it took to get the loan and, and the capital raise. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the loan is a community bank. I did mm-hmm. bunches of lot, lot of research. Mobile home parks are actually quite a bit harder to get non-recourse financing on mm-hmm. um, than apartment complexes, even smaller apartment complexes. And at uh, you know at eighty percent, the loan value wasn't going to be over a million, which is another kind of threshold for yep. the non-recourse loans. So it's, it's right in this weird place of being below that, but it's still pretty substantial. So I actually uh, went to a community bank that I've done a bunch of single family stuff with, and they were more than happy to finance it. And uh, on a 20-year term at 5.25% interest rate, and they're going to do 80% 
loan to value. So, so that was reassuring that I was going to also do this unknown deal, this bigger deal, right? Yeah. Multifamily deal with a bank that I already have a, a track record with. And so the loan process was fairly simple. I mean, they literally just brought it in front of their board. The board says they vote on it. They say yes. And it's kind of a done deal. I mean, I have to submit my personal financial statement and everything, but they already had that because I do business with them. Yeah, already, I mean, so. they, they had the one from like six months ago, right? So it's yeah, just like, that's correct. Yeah, now now you're just updating valuations, and you know, we, we've we've used a, a local credit union, and we're about ready to close a you know six and a half million dollar loan with the with the local credit union that we've been with several times. And, and something I'd like to bring up that you and I both know that I think would be helpful to the listeners is. Once you have a track record with you know a credit union or a bank or one of those small local lending institutions, it's so much easier to get a subsequent loan. I mean, obviously you have to keep your loan in good standing, but yeah. once you're a known quantity and you're paying your loans and you're closing on deals, it's so much easier. And the other thing is they're a lot flatter on their decision-making process. You know, you may yes. be dealing with one person and they walk down the hallway to the board. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's, it's yeah. like, you know, hey, how, what, what's the loan approval process? Well, I walk down the hall to Bob and I talk to Bob and he says, all right, we're in. So, you know, a lot of advantages to going with the local credit unions. And it sounds like you guys got yourself a pretty good product right there. And, and you hinted at this. It is a recourse loan, you said, right? Yeah. So that was one of the pieces in raising the money is I talked to several investors about it. And that made some of them really uncomfortable because the way we structured the deal, the bank requires, this bank requires that any partner, even limited over 10% equity to be a signer on the loan. They have to guarantee the loan. And I basically went to them because I had some relationship equity there yep. and asked them to waive that so that my investor wouldn't be on the hook for the loan and they would just be the capital that they're investing in the deal. And, um, and, I, and I was just very honest with them. I was like, hey, someone will do this deal and I want it to be with you guys. I haven't told anybody else. I haven't shopped your rate. I haven't talked to anyone else about this. I want to do it with y'all, but I'm asking this favor. Yeah. Um, and they graciously said yes. But a shift in there is that sometimes we forget, especially as you're new in the business and you're mm -hmm. getting into it. I went through this as a single family investor as well is that the bank is making money off of you. Yeah. They work for you. They don't make money if they don't write loans. And oftentimes as a new investor, you're very apprehensive about being assertive or confident when dealing with them because there's so much you don't know. But at the end of the day, you are the consumer and they need you to make money. You know, so, and, and here's here's the other thing that I, I learned recently, especially with your smaller banks. You know, if, if your smaller banks have a lot of money in their back pocket, they want to get that out and they want mm -hmm. to lend. You know, so if you find a smaller bank that happens to have more money on the balance sheet than they want, they will just to get that lending, get that money out, make little concessions like that. You know, well, our, our rule is normally anybody over 10%, but we'll, we'll make an exception for you. You know, like I said, a lot of times they're looking at their, their balance book and their investment portfolio. And if they've got a lot of cash, more cash on the sidelines than they want, they are actively looking to put that money into play, you know? So that's exactly um, right. Yeah. You're helping them with their business just as much as they're helping you with your business. So, yep. so how did, how did you structure the deal? Now you told me earlier, you, you brought in one single investor. How did you structure the deal with your investor? Yeah. Great question. This one single investor has a lot of 
net worth. And Mm -hmm. they basically had some money outside of any retirement accounts, just some kind of free money they had that they're using to invest in the stock market. So they had this money in equities and it was money that they were, for the most part, kind of underutilizing. So having conversations with them, they were going to pull some money out of the stock market and put it into this real estate investment, get some diversification. And through that, my financial advisor had told me several months ago, he had mentioned this product. Hey, Logan, if you have any of your real estate clients that have some money that they want to borrow against, but they want to have it working, let's say they sell a piece of real estate and they have this big lump sum of money, we we do these securities back line of credits. Mm-hmm. So at the time I was like, ah, I don't really know of anybody that would benefit from that. But when this investor started talking to me about their financials, I immediately thought of that product. And I said, well, what if we could keep your money invested in the market and use that capital mm-hmm to invest in, in real estate, to invest in this deal with you still keeping your money growing in the market. And they were like, how do we do that? I'm like, yeah. I thought you'd never ask, right? There um, you go. And so we did this securities back line of credit, which they'll typically let you borrow about 50% mm-hmm. of the assets that are in the account. They'll let you borrow yep. up to 50% of that at, on an interest only basis. Um, so the, the loan is gonna be, they're taking basically a loan against their, their equities. And that's going to cost them 2.6%. So I, we structured it where they're going to get a 3.5% preferred return. Mm-hmm. So before I take any money home, they're going to make sure that we cover that loan amount, that interest there. And then we split the equity, the remaining equity, 75 for the managing partner and 25 for the limited partner. They're getting that preferred return. And then they get some of the cash flow and then upside as well. And this particular investor was happy with that. Because which their their IRR is not going to be what you normally see in a real estate deal, but because of that structure and keeping their money working in the stock market, they were okay because they're going to go make you know eight or nine percent a year on the money that they're borrowing against, and they're going to go make another 11 twelve percent in the real estate investment, and it's only costing them a couple percentage. They're gonna their overall return is going to be seventeen eighteen percent, and they are smitten. You know, yeah. Yeah, and that's that's a very creative way of doing things. I mean, I I know there's there's I've heard of security backed line of credits, haven't uh, haven't seen it actively done. Talked to a couple of financial advisors that have products like that, but it's a way where I mean, obviously you're using your 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 stock or your notes or whatever investment account mm-hmm. as your collateral. If for some reason you're not they're not able to pay back that two two and a half percent or whatever interest rate, the the bank is whoever whoever's lending them the money is going to force them to sell. You know, and they put that 50% limit on there to, to cover their their downside in case there's a stock market crash. The lender is still going to hopefully come out on the uh, on the right side. Lenders right. always protect themselves, so that's you know rule number one from Warren Buffett: don't lose money. That's so right. <laughs> banks banks make sure that they're not losing money. So very very creative structure right there from from many different directions i mean you're able to to sidestep the requirement of bringing your investor in on the loan as a guarantor you assumed more risk and because you're assuming mm-hmm. more risk you you were able to walk away with a slightly higher percentage and i think that's um it's something that whenever whenever i'm looking at deals either as a you know a gp or as an lp you know one thing i'm always looking at is who's shouldering the risk who is shouldering yep. the risk and whoever is shouldering the most risk should get get, you know, compensated for the risk they're shouldering. And in this case, you know, your name's on the loan for almost a million dollars. So you're, you're shouldering, <laughs> yeah. you're shouldering a, a lot of like, risk. 
It's a little yeah. uncomfortable with previous loans being, you know, my biggest yeah. loans previous were a couple hundred thousand, you know, so yeah. it, it it's the numbers all make sense, but it's still a little uncomfortable, you know, I'm not going to be honest yeah. about that. I mean, my first loan that I signed for commercial, I was, I was a little, I mean, it was, it was kind of a new thing, but I, I think I'm, you know, principal guarantor on you know, $20 million worth of loans, you know, so <laughs> you, you, you start I mean, and, and about half of our loans are recourse products, but you, you start getting used to the idea and you get to the point to where $285,000 raise or a $960,000 loan don't don't seem that big anymore, which you know, when I first did, you know, 1.2 million, whoa, you know, as soon as you cross that million dollar threshold, you know, for some reason in my mind, that was a big deal. And, and it, it is a big deal, but so good. So, you know, today is is Wednesday and you guys are set to close on Friday. So yep. send me a text or an email when you guys close and, you know, so I can, you know, write you yeah, congratulations back. Of course, sounds like you have everything, you know, ducks in a row, everything's ready yep. to go. So here, here's a question that I like to ask everybody. You know, what advice would you give an aspiring investor who's you know six to twelve months behind you? That's a really good question. I was just thinking about it as you were talking and, and talking mm-hmm. about is it a big deal or not a big deal? This is something that has really I've seen it play out in my life over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And Grant Cardone kind of talks about this in his 10x rule. But my goal is to have a thousand doors mm-hmm. in. 36 months. So that is extremely aggressive. And I did that for a reason, because Mm -hmm. even if I don't hit it, I'm still going to end up with several hundred doors. So the fears of this, of some of the pitfalls of this million dollar deal, $1.2 million deal become smaller, knowing the amount of activity that I have to do and the amount of action I have to take in order to get to that big goal. It can't, it's propelling me through the big vision It's propelling me through some of these smaller battles that if I was only looking at this one deal, I may get hung up on and quit. Yeah. But because I have a really big goal and I have something that it, for me is a really big goal, right? It's, it's, it's a big undertaking. It's a big mental shift that is pulling me through through some of the uncertainty and the uncomfortableness because I know I have to in order to hit that big goal. So mm-hmm. I would say whatever you're thinking right now about what your goals are going to be for the next 12 months, I would say only focus on the next 90 days and whatever you think you want to do in the next 12 months, plan to do it in 90 days mm-hmm. and watch the magic that happens in constricting that timeline, but not changing the goal. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's going to force you to act is what it's going to do, you know, and that's, yep. that's, that's really, I think that the magic there, I mean, if, if you're taking your year long goal and putting it in 90 days, now you have to act. You know, I, I think a lot of times the, the wisdom in what you say, a lot of times if, if you say I've got 12 months to get this goal done, you know, you, you can sit back for a little bit. You're like, oh, I've still got, you know, 11 and a half months left, you know, and plenty of time. Yeah, I've got plenty of time, you know, and, and I think I think that takes people out of the the action path. But I think that's that's wise advice. You know, take take your 12 your 12 month goal, pack it into three months and hustle. You know, really what it's going to do is it's, it's going to compress that timeline. It's going to light a fire and it's going to mm-hmm. push you to act faster. So, all right. Last question for you. How can our listeners learn more about you? That's a great question. Um, they can find me on Facebook, also mm-hmm. Instagram, Logan Bowers. And I will soon have my website up live and running because I just got this kicked off. But but you guys can find me on Facebook and on Instagram. Be Logan right. Bowers on Instagram and Logan Bowers on Facebook. All right. The Logan Bowers. All right. Awesome. Thanks, Logan. Appreciate your time. And uh, that's a wrap for today. (laughs) 
Thank you for listening to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast today, brought to you by Four Oaks Capital. If you'd like to know more about how to invest in apartment buildings or want to be a guest in our show, visit our website at fouroakscapital.com slash podcast or email us directly. If you're still listening, you obviously like the show, so pull out your phone, tap subscribe, and leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. And we'll see you again next week.